Great. Well, children can be dismissed. First Peter, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1 this morning. Continuing in our series, Standing Firm in the Grace of God. Standing Firm in the Grace of God and how we need His grace in order to do that, in order to stand firm. Let me begin simply by reading these verses, starting in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Let's pause and pray before we continue. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us as we come to your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to be able to find ways to apply it to our lives. But ultimately, what we need is for your spirit to give us understanding, your spirit to open our eyes, and your spirit to take the hard ground of our hearts, to work it up so that your, that your word might take root and produce fruit in our lives. God, we're so grateful that we don't come here on our own, that we're not dependent upon human wisdom and human understanding, but we are dependent upon you, and we have you with us. So we ask that your spirit would be at work here among us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may remember that last week I said that we are... And in the middle of a long sentence from Peter, we started that sentence last week, the sentence that in the Greek begins in verse 3, and in, there's no punctuation, there's no period, no stopping in the Greek until we get all the way to the end of verse 12. So we're picking up in the middle of this sentence, continuing Peter's thought. And the sentence began with this word, this exclamation of praise, blessed be, or praise B, the NIV says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes these words and immediately he begins to give reasons why we should bless his name. And you can see in your Bibles the reasons. I do have it up on the screen. These reasons in verses 3 through 5 of why we should bless his name. We bless him because he's given us new birth. We, we bless Him because of His great mercy. We bless Him because He's given us a living hope. We bless Him because He has guaranteed for us an inheritance. But not just any inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable. An inheritance that is undefiled and an inheritance that is unfading. And even as we await that day, not only is our inheritance kept, but Peter says we are being kept. He is guarding us on our journey through this world by His power and our faith. This is incredible 
news and reasons for us to bless the Lord, to praise His name. Someone texted me this week and she said there's parts where I just wanted to shout out hallelujah. And I said, well, I wish you would. Because we need, we got, we got John, I said at prayer meeting, we have our, we have John as our bold ameners. So he, we need, we need more of us. But what reasons we have to shout and to celebrate. And as one of the first words that we, we read in these verses, what reason we have to rejoice. And this word rejoice means to feel extreme, not just to feel happiness, but to feel extreme happiness or elation. Literally, this word, and when you put the parts together, what this word means in the Greek is to leap or to jump for joy. Peter says, we have such reasons to jump for joy at what God has done for us. And if you ever felt like that as you hear and read the good news of the gospel and hear the good news of the gospel and what is your good news? Peter says we should. William Barclay says that this word rejoice describes and gives the picture of a mountain climber who has reached the summit. You can picture a mountain climber. They've, they've conquered the sharp inclines. They've made it over the difficult obstacles. There was life and death situations where they weren't sure they're going to make it, but now they're on the top. And as they stand on the top of the mountain on the peak, they have their hands in the air celebrating the victory. And Barclay says that's the picture this word gives us. But notice in our verses that that's not the picture that these verses tell us. These verses are not mountaintop verses. These verses are verses in the valley. Peter uses the word rejoice and praise and glory and honor. But he uses them right alongside of words like trials and testing. And in the ESV, just a few words away from this word rejoice is the word grief. King James uses the word heaviness. Rejoice in this, though you are in heaviness. Have you ever felt the emotion of heaviness? This week there was a moment in our house where it just seemed like things were piling up and I stopped the kids. I even started studying. I hadn't read this King James and I said, kids, do you feel the heaviness in this place? Do you feel the weight that is blanketing? A spiritual and emotional heaviness. That's what Peter's readers are experiencing. That's why he is writing this to them. Because the various trials that they are undergoing were causing them grief. They were weighing them down. But he is writing them to remind them that though they are experiencing grief, they should also be be reminded that they have a reason for great joy. Now this word grief does not mean the situation that produces grief. I want to clarify that. It means the grief that is felt because of the situation. It's an emotion. It's, it's, it's a weight. It's a feeling that you are experiencing. It's not simply that you are going through something and Peter's saying ignore that and rejoice. He's saying you are going through something and it is weighing you down and you are filled with grief. You are heavy. But I want you to know that at the same time there is this reason to rejoice. And I want to also notice that in these verses, not once does He command rejoicing. These are not imperatives. He is stating something that is true of Christians. This week, I was last weekend, I was watching football. It's probably been 
done too much of watching football. And there was a, a play where this wide receiver, often in football, the, the play happened on the field, but it went out of bounds off of the field. And this little wide receiver running back, I don't remember, he ran into this big lineman that was on the sideline not playing, and he hit the lineman, and the, the player fell to the ground, and the lineman just did what linemen do. When they're in the game, he he celebrated and got all flexed and got all got all proud of himself, but he wasn't in the game. He was on the sidelines. It was real funny. And I thought about that. And he did that because that's what he does when he has that experience. And what Peter is saying is when you are a Christian, when when things run into you, what spills out of you is rejoicing. Even though you're grieving, we can talk about what that might look like, but there is some element of this rejoicing that is in the Christian. He's not commanding it. He's pointing to something that is a reality. He's saying, look in the mirror. You're grieving, but don't forget your joy. The normal Christian life is one of sorrowful yet rejoicing. Paul uses that word in Second Corinthians where he says that he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Paul uses that phrase, which is the title of this sermon, but Peter is saying that. The, the term rejoicing is in, a, is in the present tense. It's a continual thing. My slide's going to mess up on me. It's an ongoing reality for the Christian. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we do this? How, how, do we, how, do we, how do we keep our joy and keep rejoicing when we go through difficult situations? And Peter points to, I think, five things in these verses. Five things that we have as our foundation. We, we have as our normal Christian living so that when trials hit us, though we grieve, there is still rejoicing in God. The first thing is this. We need to know that trials are a part of the Christian life. Know that trials are a part of the Christian life. Towards the end of his letter, uh, Peter reminds his readers that they should not be surprised at the fiery trial. Because it's going to come. And don't think that it's something strange happening to you. Don't think that your life should be void of trials. He's writing to Christians who are persecuted. So the promise that Jesus made to us and the promise for Christians is, is not a release from trials. In fact, we look at the Bible and we see that often it's the opposite. And Jesus told his disciples that you need to take heart because in this world you will have trouble. Trouble is the NIV. Tribulation is the ESV. Now, we know the rest of that verse. We want to quickly go to that. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. But the reason they needed to take heart was because they were experiencing and would experience trouble. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we think of persecuted as people in persecuted countries. Certainly that's a part of this, but persecuted means to be hunted down, to be chased after. It could be by being chased after by somebody, but it could just be the being chased after. Think of Job and the situation of Job where he is chased after by Satan and by what God allows Satan to do in his life. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas there seeking to encourage the church. And he says that they, Luke writes, that they strengthened the disciples and they encouraged them to remain true in the faith 
by reminding them that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now again, we think about this simply in terms of the spread of the gospel, but yet we have an enemy who wants to keep us from the kingdom of God. And he will throw hardships our way, and we must go through them, must remain faithful. And they encourage and they strengthen the disciples by reminding them that this is part of the reality of the Christian. And again, we, we, we I've pointed out we kind of limit these to maybe things that the Apostle Paul went through because of being an apostle or things that the disciples went to because they were spreading the gospel, persecution, death, beatings. But Peter wants his readers to know he's not just referring to that because he says you have been grieved by various trials. Then he says all kinds of trials. The point is we're not supposed to try to look at what trials he's pointing to. He's pointing to all of them. The word literally means having, or the word means having great diversity or, or variety, but literally, if you, again, if you just look at the Greek word, it means many colored. Many colored. Various hues and shades of trials that we will endure. From the greatest heartache to the smallest inconvenience, to the situation that almost breaks us, to the situations that tempt us to pout for a few All of them are included, and all of them will be included in our lives. Like Joseph, which this same word is used in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word for for various here, it's used to refer to Joseph's coat, which we know is a coat of many colors. And like Joseph and his coat, we will all arrive at the end of our lives having borne many colors of suffering. Now, now some may have darker hues than others. Some darker hues may be more prominent on others' coats than ours. But all of us will experience various trials. An interesting note about this word is that Peter only uses it one other place in his letter. He uses it here in chapter 1 where he describes trials. He uses it one other place. And there he uses it to describe God's multicolored grace. Our troubles are multicolored, but so is God's grace. For every trial there is a grace to match it. There is no color of trial that we will experience where we will not find God's grace to meet us in that experience. But we will have trouble. First way to keep our joy in the midst of trials, Peter says, know that they are coming. Second, Peter tells us that if, if we want to be able to rejoice in our trials, then we need to make sure that we're rejoicing in the right thing. Make sure you've got your joy in the right place. Notice the first words of our verse. First words in our verses say this, in this, you rejoice. This, one of those words we kind of overlook, but hear what Peter is saying. You don't simply rejoice, but your rejoicing has an object. You are rejoicing in a particular thing. And what is that this? What is this thing? It is not the trials that we're to rejoice in. Some people think, well, we're just supposed to re- rejoice And there are verses that say we are to rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. But even there, we're not rejoicing in the suffering. 
Rejoicing in being worthy to suffer for Christ. And here, the this does not look ahead to the word trials, but it looks back to verses 3 through 5. There's things we mentioned at the beginning. But if we wanted to pin the this on one phrase, we could pin it on the word living hope. This is what we rejoice in. We rejoice in our living hope. Our living hope that has given us new birth. Our living hope that has guaranteed our inheritance. Our living hope that reminds us that we are guarded by God. And it's in this we rejoice. I thought about that phrase and I realized that so often one of the reasons I lose my joy is because my joy is in the wrong thing. My joy is in something that is imperishable, undefiled. My joy is not in what is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But it's it's a joy in things that perish. It's a joy in things that fade. It's It's a joy in things that become defiled. And when they are, my joy begins to wane. But we are told to place our joy in a place that cannot be touched by this world. Too often we place our joy in our comfort. Place our joy in our ease. And when something comes along to shake that, we become very unjoyful. We place our joy in our health. We, we find our joy in our relationships and our friendships. We, we get joy from how we're viewed by others and maybe we get our joy from our jobs and how we're advancing in our careers. And certainly those things can be gifts from God to bring us some degree of joy, of some degree of happiness, but they cannot be the source and the root of our joy. Because when trials come, those things become shaken. Those things will not stand up when the grief hits our lives. One pastor compared the joy and the grief that goes on in our lives to two currents of the ocean. And there's two separate currents in an ocean. And sometimes those separate currents are going in completely opposite directions. On On the surface, there is the surface current. And this surface current actually extends up to 300 feet below the, the surface of the, the water. So it goes somewhat deep. But this current is a current that is driven by the winds. It's affected by what is going on around it. It's, 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 it's shaped and molded and, and driven and directed by the elements of nature. And, and when a storm comes, that current is affected. But deep below, there is another current. There is a, there is a deep water current. And this current is, is not dictated by outside forces. It's not dictated by storms. But instead, it is affected by the density of the salt water. It's affected by what it is and what's in it. And while the current on the surface might be tumultuous because the storm is raging, the deep current is steadily moving forward because of who is in it. That's the picture that Peter gives us in these verses. On the surface, we experience griefs because of the storms of life that surround us. But beneath the surface, there is another current. And it is here where we must place our joy. You remember that image I gave of that vault standing after the hurricane came through and ravaged the area in Mississippi with Hurricane Katrina. And I, I thought, you know, so often instead of a vault, my my current is placed on my piggy on the piggy bank on my kids' bookshelf, which got knocked down and broken. 
one of the things about this word rejoice in the, is that it's only ever used in the Bible. You will not find this word used anywhere else in Greek language. When the biblical writers had to describe a joy, a rejoicing that Christians have, they had to come up with a new word. Our rejoicing is found in something that this world can't create, this world can't describe, this world can't define. It's, it's found only in God and what He has done for us in Jesus. And it's here where we must place our joy and continue to place our joy and continue to pull our joy from. We need to make sure our joy is in the right place. Thirdly, we need to keep a long-term perspective. Keep a long-term perspective. Notice that Peter says in these verses, Now for a little while... You have been grieved by various trials. This word, little while, is one word in the Greek, and it means small in number or little in amount. Another, another definition is that it means not much and almost none. Peter says, yes, you may experience trials, but remember, at the longest, they last for a little while. First Peter 5.10 tells us, or Peter writes, that after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now be careful not thinking that this verse means something that it doesn't mean. Because a little while for us might be an entire lifetime. The the perspective of Peter is not one of earthly life. Not one of 70, 80, 90 years. His perspective is one of eternity. He he says the perspective you need to have is an eternal perspective. Later on in 2 Peter, he he writes, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Here's the perspective of Peter. Here's the way he gauges time. And that is that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. One day when we've been in heaven a thousand years, we will look back on our life and it will seem like merely a day. One commentator, a pastor, I can't remember where I read this, but he used the illustration of a mayfly. A mayfly is a tiny insect that has the lifespan of 24 hours. Now imagine if you're a mayfly and you have a bad day. You've had a bad life. And if you could somehow talk to a mayfly, he, he might tell you, man, did you feel that gust of wind that just came? It, it nearly, it nearly, it, it, it messed up half my life. It lasted four seconds. One day, it's one day that will be our perspective. We will, we will see that our entire earthly life, even if we live to be a hundred, was merely a little while. In Second Corinthians, Paul, Paul says. That uh, this light and momentary affliction. It's light, but notice the word momentary. Immediate, I think, is what this word means. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blink. It is preparing for us an eternal. That's the comparison. Momentary to eternal. Another comparison. Light and weight. But we're going to focus on the momentary and eternal. 
It is preparing for us an eternal glory that is beyond all comparison. Tom Watson said, Affliction may be lasting, and it may be long-lasting, but it is not everlasting. But brothers and sisters, you are everlasting. And by keeping that perspective, we can rejoice even in the midst of our afflictions. Fourth, Peter reminds us, don't forget God's purposes. Don't allow the trials to make you forget God's purposes for you. Notice again in verse 6, and I promise we're going to get beyond verse 6 in just a second. But notice another little phrase. Peter packs these little phrases in there. Notice another little phrase. He says, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. If it's necessary. Now we might focus on that word if and say, well... Maybe it's not necessary, but one commentator said that if is not really an iffy if. It doesn't mean that they're not necessary. It means that God will allow them when they're necessary. And trials are necessary for our lives. It's hard for us to believe that and think that. But God allows trials for a purpose. Satan has a plan for our trials, but God has a purpose for them. He allows them only for a reason. So that something else might happen in our lives. Notice he says, If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that. There's a purpose. There's a reason for heaviness. Not because God delights in causing us pain. Not because He desires to see us grieve. But He does it because He knows our grieving can produce a greater something greater in our lives. James tells us that one of the reasons for trials is, and one of the reasons we can rejoice is because we know that it is producing something in our lives. It's producing endurance. It's producing steadfastness. The psalmist in Psalm 119 said, he knows that trials kept him from sin. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. And because of this, the the psalmist is able to say what we really have a hard time saying. And I have a hard time saying. And a hard time reading. But when you read it in the context, you understand why he's saying this. He says, it was good for me that I experienced that. Because it kept me from sin. It kept me from harming my life. It kept me from going down the road I was going down. It woke me up to God and to His Word. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, three times he had pleaded with the Lord to remove his affliction, which he describes as his thorn in the flesh, which many think was a problem with his eyes. Paul, we, we pick up in different places that he couldn't see very well. Paul said, I prayed to be healed. I prayed to be restored. I, I prayed not to have to continue to deal with this. The context of this is God took him into the, the highest realms of heaven. God can do it. Why isn't he? He says, I realized that these afflictions were for a reason. And the reason was so that I would be driven from pride and driven from self-reliance and driven to the Lord. Three times I ple- or it was, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect your weakness. Notice this 
born was a messenger of Satan. Like Job. God allowed Satan to have at Job. God allowed Satan to have at Paul. Martin Luther Martin Luther said, never forget that even the devil is the Lord's devil. Never forget that the devil cannot operate independent of what God allows him to do. The devil is not sovereign. And God allowed Satan to get at Paul, but God had a purpose in it. And that was so that Paul in his weakness would learn God's strength. So Paul is able to say in the next verse, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Because the power of Christ rests upon me in those moments. Use this phrase before this quote before, but Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Again, Luther said, Affliction is the best book in my library. I don't know that he really wanted to go out and pull it out that often, but it was the one he learned from the most. Towards the end of his life, Malcolm Muggridge said that contrary to, and this is him looking back on his life, he said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. I look back on them now with satisfaction. Indeed, everything I have learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through suffering and affliction and not through happiness. Remember Johnny Erickson Tata kind of picturing what it would be like to go to heaven. Johnny, who has spent her whole life in a wheelchair, and she pictures being in heaven, standing before God, and standing on her glorified legs, and, and jumping and rejoicing. And she says, I kind of want to bring my wheelchair there, just for a moment. And I want to bring my wheelchair there, and, and I don't remember the quote, I'm paraphrasing, but I want to say, God, I hated that thing. God, that thing wore me down, it made me weak, it made me weep. But God, I thank you for that wheelchair. Because the the weaker it made me, the stronger it made me realize you were. The lower it brought me, the closer it made me cling to you. And then then she says, so I thank you, God, for that wheelchair. But now you can send that thing to hell. (laughs) One day, all the things that afflict us will be cast away. Paul says, Peter says there's a purpose and the purpose, I keep clicking on that and that does not control my slide. The purpose is that so that we might realize the strength of our faith, which is more precious than gold, which gold was the most precious thing. But gold, Peter will say later, will burn away when all the earth burns away. But your faith will remain and it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tests are proving, they prove to us the strength of our faith. They prove to us the reminder that nothing in this world can take our faith from us. When gold is put into a fire, everything that is truly gold remains. But all that is impure, all all that is dross burns away. And what comes out is, is a solid, pure piece of gold. This week I finished reading John Newton's autobiography. And at the introduction he compares looking back over his life to what the, the Israelites were to do when they got in the promised land. And God said, remember the whole way that the Lord has led you. 
He humbled you. He made you want and hunger. He, he did this to test you and said, remember that. And Newton in his biography says that there is a time coming when our spiritual warfare will be finished. When our perspective will be enlarged and our understanding increased. Then we will look back upon the experience through which the Lord led us and be overwhelmed by, the adora- by adoration and love for Him. We will then see and acknowledge that mercy and goodness directed every step. Then he says, we shall see that what we once mistakenly called afflictions and misfortunes were in reality, reality blessings, without which we would not have grown in faith. Nothing happened without a reason. No problem came upon us sooner. No problem pressed on us more heavily. No problem continued longer than our situation required. That's hard for me to read, but sometimes even harder to read is the words of persecuted Christians around the world. I got this magazine this week, Open Doors, sends a magazine every two months, and there's a story of a North Korean sister, Bay is not a real name, but it's what they've changed it to. And just in part of this letter that she wrote to Open Doors, she says, from the perspective of other people, our life of suffering must seem like a cursed life. However, this suffering is a blessing from our Father who allowed it in our life because it is a shortcut to Him. He knows our suffering. He listens to our prayers. And we thank our Father who has done such great things to prepare life for us. I encourage you, if you don't know what goes on in North Korea for Christians, take this afternoon and find out and then hear that again. Says he knows our sufferings. He listens to our prayers. The psalmist says that God is not cold in how He deals with us in our sufferings. He's, he, 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 he doesn't make us go through trials in an uncaring way, but instead, when we go through our trials, when we go through our grief, He keeps, He counts our tossings. Any of you ever tossed in the night? He counts our tossings and He puts our tears in His bottle. And he writes them in, our, in his book. He knows them. He sees them. But he wants to use them. Finally, the last reason we can, or way we can, keep, we can keep rejoicing in trials is to keep our eyes on the reward. And I have a parenthesis after this because there's three rewards I want to quickly list, but there's one ultimate reward. The first is that we will receive praise and glory and honor. We see that at the end of verse 7 where it says that praise and glory and honor will be given at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's some debate about whether this is praise and glory to honor to Jesus or to us. And obviously Jesus is going to receive the higher praise and the, the greater glory. But I think Peter is referring here to the praise and glory and honor that we will receive when we, if we remain faithful to Him. 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, Paul refers to the praise that each of us will receive from God. And in 17, we already read this, but we see that there is a glory that is awaiting us that is beyond all comparison. And in the parable of the talents, when the master returns, he honors the faithful servants by saying to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. Keep your eyes on that day. Don't look for the praise and honor and glory from men. But instead, look at it from God. Often, it's, it's, in, it's in missing out on the praise and glory and honor from men that we receive affliction. 
But Peter says, I know you're experiencing this, but look for the greater treasure that is awaiting you. Second, he says that the second reward is is the salvation of our souls. At the end of verse 9, he says, this testing of your faith is producing and obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. Verse 8 and 9 in the NIV says, you will be filled with an inex, or you are filled, not will be, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This phrase, glorious joy, it's a term describing the glory that is in heaven. A glory that surrounds the throne. Peter says one day you're going to be a part of that, but notice he says right now, right now in the midst of this world, you bring a piece of that glory of heaven into this world and into your life. Wayne Grudem says, it is joy that has been infused with heavenly glory and that still possesses the radiance of it. It's a joy that's inexpressible. You can't put it into words. Because we are obtaining right now the salvation, the saving of our souls. And finally, the last reward, and this is the ultimate reward. And that is that our ultimate reward is not in a thing. Our ultimate reward is not in a trophy. Our ultimate reward is not even in a mansion in the sky. Our ultimate reward is not even released from suffering. But our ultimate reward is found in a person. A person who Peter says, though you don't see him, you love him. And even though we don't see him now, Peter joins in that. He had seen them. But now he says, we don't see him now, but we trust him. And we know that one day he will be revealed to us. And and when he is, Revelation says that any trophies, any crowns that we receive, we're going to cast them down at his feet because he is far greater than anything we receive from him. He is our great reward. And when we see him, that, that gospel song says, when we see him, we will know that it was worth it all. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. Just one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. Run the race until we see Christ. Although that path leads through grief and heaviness. In closing, there was a story I came across as I was studying this week. Talks, illustrates what happens when we are able to rejoice in the midst of trials. And it's a story that's set in the Roman Empire under, during the reign of Nero. So it's not long, it's not far separated from when this letter was written. It's the story of the emperor's wrestlers. These emperor's wrestlers were the bravest of the brave, the best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. And they were chosen to wrestle and fight against the emperors, anybody who would challenge the emperor, they, were, they, would, they would fight against them in the Roman amphitheater. And before each contest, these wrestlers, they would, they would come and they would stand before the emperor and they would cry out, We the wrestlers wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. The stadium would fill with that noise and everybody would cheer. 
One year, however, in midwinter, there was a rebellion taking place in Gaul, and the emperor, he decided to send these wrestlers to join the army, to put to end this rebellion, and to end the war. And he placed them under a, century, a centurion by the, name of, by the name of Vespasian. And as the war was raging on, Nero got word that there was a revival taking place among his soldiers. Many had heard the gospel and were becoming Christians, and Nero had to have an end of that, and he sent a decree to his army... The decree was that if there be any among the soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christians, they must die. This decree was received in the dead of winter, and the soldiers were camped beside a frozen lake. And as Vespasian received this letter, this decree, his heart sank because he had fought alongside these men. Vespasian called the soldiers together, called the army together, and he says, Are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian? If so, let him step forward. And immediately, 40 wrestlers stepped forward two paces, respectfully saluted and stood at attention. Vespasian paused. He had not expected so many nor such select ones. So he said, until sundown, I'll wait your answer. You have a chance to recant. Sundown came and this question was asked again. And again, the 40 wrestlers stepped forward. Vespasian who didn't want to lose his men, but didn't know what to do. Again, he pleaded with them to recant, and none of them did. And finally he said, The decree of the emperor must be obeyed. But I'm not willing that any of your comrades should shed your blood. I'm going to order you to march out to the lake of ice, to strip down and march out to the lake of ice, and I will leave you there to the mercy of the elements. He lit a fire on the shores, and he watched as these 40 wrestlers stripped and then walked and marched in columns of four towards the center of the ice. And as they marched, they broke into the chant of the arena. Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Through the long hours of the night, Vespasian stood by the the fire and watched. And as the night wore on, the cry became less and less and weaker and weaker. And as morning drew, he saw one figure overcome by exposure began to creep towards the fire. Quietly, silently, or quietly, he recanted his faith. He had given in to the elements. Vespasian thought, well, this is the end of this. But faintly, but clearly from the darkness came the song. Thirty-nine wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Vespasian looked at the figure drawing close to the fire, and then he looked back to the middle of the lake where these 90, 39 wrestlers stood, dying from exposure, but yet remaining faithful even though losing one. The story says that Vespasian moved, removed his helmet. He took off his clothing, and he began to walk to the center of the lake, and as he did, he cried out, Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. May we be faithful in the midst of the trials, not knowing why God allows them or what God plans for them, but trusting that His purposes are for our good and His glory and that He is with us in the midst of them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to passages like these and as a pastor in many ways, I just kind of want to skip over them. Because I know there's many 
through the various trials are deep and hard. But God, we know that in this world we will have trouble. And while we don't all understand it, Father, we know that you are with us in the trouble. And, And we know that you can bring great things out of our lowest points. That in our darkness your light can shine. And sometimes we just wish it would be somebody else's darkness. But God, we also don't realize what they're going through. We don't understand the trial that they're experiencing, that we might not see, that might not be as obvious. But yet, Father, you have given to each of us the path to walk for a reason and for a purpose. So, Father, may we be faithful in the one that you have called us to. And may you use our lives as a testimony to the strength of Jesus. May our faith shine brighter and brighter and brighter in this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Well, let me invite you to stand. Let me send you out with this benediction from Jude. As you go, may you remember this truth and may you go confident in this. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Peace. You are dismissed.